Well, good morning, church. It's so great to be with you. I, I don't know about you, but I, I love our church family. And two of you agree with me. The rest of you, yeah. No, I, I, I love our family. And you know, they say distance makes the heart grow fonder. And as obviously I've been away for much of this year, and it's been great this fall to, to kind of come back and reconnect with you, reconnect with family. There's just nothing like family. You know, one of our core values around here, it states this. It says, we are a mosaic of people loving God and doing life together. We are a family. There's a lot of different words that people use, a lot of images that they have of church. They think church is a building. They think church is a gathering, a service. Uh, the technical word for church in the Greek, ekklesia, really means an assembly or a gathering of sorts. But it's the people. It's not the building or the event but family, we are a family. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we are not all the same. In fact, the whole nature of a mosaic is such that it's different pieces. I love mosaics. If you, if you look at mosaics really close, they usually don't look like much. Uh, typically, mosaics are either uh, stone or broken glass. And of course, you think, what is the value of broken glass? Normally, when we break glass, the first thing we do is we get a broom, right, and a dustpan, and we get rid of it. But there's something about mosaics where artists will take pieces of broken glass, different colors, different shapes, and they will assemble them in beautiful, beautiful ways. Uh, the, the results can be absolutely stunning. I don't, I don't know if you think much about this. I mean, you can clearly see there's just kind of a collection of different pieces. From far away, they don't look like much, or close, they don't look like much, but you can see the beauty of something like that. Can you see these pieces? I, I don't know how well the, it's a little bit blurry, but these are all little individual pieces of, of glass or of stone, colored stone. And this is actually from Istanbul, Turkey in a place called Hagia Sophia that Heather and I were privileged to visit about six or seven years ago. So this is up close, but when you, when you back it up, that picture is formed by a bunch of little pieces. It's a mosaic. And any one of those pieces on its own really doesn't look like much. It doesn't matter like much. But when we, we see them all come together, the difference is they form one beautiful picture. Imagine if every one of those individual tiles was yellow. It'd be pretty boring. But together, they form this beautiful picture. This is actually a, a better picture of it. You can see just the size of this mosaic with the, the people. It's, it's a remarkable, remarkable thing. Well, we're in the middle of a series in the book of Ephesians, and if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn them on or take them out. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4 today. We've been through the first three over the last several weeks. And the interesting thing about this book that Paul writes, Paul writes to a church in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, another city that you can visit today, and it's, it's really quite remarkable. I think it's actually one of the most remarkable places in antiquity that you can visit. And, and this is a... a a town probably not terribly unlike Toledo. There was, there's, there's water nearby, so it's a port city. And anytime you have a port, you have people coming in and out. You have goods and services. Well, not services so much, but you have goods, products coming in and out with, with the, the water and the, the boats and such. And the, the thing about Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, there's six chapters. And the first three, Paul writes about identity. He, really, the whole book is about identity. But he talks about kind of a theological perspective. 
he tells us things about who we are in Christ. And the phrase in Christ is used over and over again. And it's a short book, so if you're unfamiliar with the book of Ephesians, if you're new today or, or new recently, I encourage you, spend some time this week with the book of Ephesians. Today, as I was getting ready uh, at home, I just turned it on my phone and just listened to it. It's a, it's a fairly short book. It only takes a few minutes to listen to the whole book. And by the way, when we talk about books of the Bible, we only have time to usually look at a few passages. But can you imagine writing a letter to somebody? When you write a letter to someone, you intend typically for the letter to be written and read all at once, right? Uh, those of you that may be in, in days recent or past, you receive a love note. I doubt any of you were like, oh, look at this love note. I'm going to read one paragraph, and then I'm just going to set it aside, and, and next week I'll read the second paragraph. I mean, no one does that. You want to just kind of consume it all as a package. And letters are typically written that way. Now, books are a little different because we have chapters, and people will, will read a chapter at a time, maybe before they go to bed or such. But a letter is sort of meant to be read all at once. And by the way, though there are chapters in this book, those were added much, much later. There were no numbers. There were no chapter 1 or verse 16 when Paul wrote it. He just wrote a letter. And so when we read Ephesians, it's helpful to read it in one sitting as a letter. Okay? So the first three chapters, as people have added these chapter headings, are all about orthodoxy. They're all about the right thinking, the right understanding of God and who we are and who God is. But when we come to chapter 4 and the rest, the second half of the book, 4, 5, and 6, is all about orthopraxy, which is how we are to live. So one's about right thinking and the other's about right doing. Make sense? So the context, and when we get to verse chapter 4, is Paul's given us all this information. You heard from Jason last week and, and others as we've been teaching through this series. But we, we get to this incredible second half about now what are we supposed to do with this text. So we're talking today about mosaic. We're talking about family. And if there's one word to describe our subject today, it is one. And you probably, as Levi was reading, you saw that word one read over and over again. So I want you to just think of the word one, and we'll be in good shape today. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. He was hardly a perfect person, did some horrible things early in his life, and yet you redeemed him. You ex exercised your grace. And for all of us, Lord, I thank you that there is amazing grace available to each of us that no matter what we've done in our past, that we are able to receive your love and your grace and your forgiveness. And I pray that as we look today at what it means to live out our faith, that, Holy Spirit, you would fill us. You would work in this space. You would work with those online today and those here in this sanctuary, that we would leave different than we arrived, not because of my eloquent words, but because of the power of the gospel, the good news the power of your word and the power of your spirit alive in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's the first thing when you think of, when you hear the word family? I just want you to silently think for a moment about family. Maybe, maybe there's an image of a, a family gathering or a picture. For some of you, maybe it's a painful word. 
there are many gaps. I, I, I still love the, the, the line that, you know, for some of us, it's, you know, we put the fun and dysfunctional in our family. Maybe some of you have had an excellent family. This morning, our hearts are heavy uh, for the Griffin family and the loss of a loved one. And yesterday for the Flint family as we mourned the loss and, and celebrated the life of Dave Flint. Family brings great joy and great sadness and sorrow. Like when it's good, it's so good. And when it's bad, it's so bad. On a lighter note, I want you to think about some famous families. What are some famous families in our world? Just, just shout it out. Like think about fam famous families. You're, Hollywood's family is evidently famous. I didn't actually know your, your family was famous, Hollywood, but I guess it is now. What, what are some other famous families you think about? The Kardashians. Kardashians, yeah. Like the Kennedys. What did you say? DuPont, yeah, DuPont family in, in Delaware. The Adams family. <laughs> we have all these different images, right, of families. All right, so regardless of your family of origin, I want you to just imagine an ideal family. You know, maybe it is something from TV, and you think, wow, they just had their act together. Again, when family is good, it's really, really good. And I have to admit that, that my personal experience with family is quite positive, and for that, I'm very, very grateful. I don't take it for granted. I know so many have had more challenging family situations, although it seems like in recent years, our family has had more challenges than we did in the early days. It's just kind of the way life is, I suppose. But no matter what family you're in, where two or more are gathered together, there's conflict or potential for conflict. The very thing that makes relationships interesting, which is its diversity, can be the same things that cause the tension and the friction. They say opposites attract, and sometimes over time, those opposites can be frustrating, even though they are the, the things that bring us together. God created you with unique and special abilities. He created you with dignity, value, and worth, and he knew you in your mother's womb. You were not an accident. You were not a mistake, even if people have told you that. He sees you. He hears you. He loves you. He knows you. And I believe that somebody needs to hear that today, that, that you are seen by God, you are seen by us, you are loved and accepted just as, as warts and all, because we all have the warts. And the blood of Jesus is able to cover all of our sins. The acceptance of, of God is not because we're good people, because we're not. It's only because of the blood of Jesus that, that covers our sins and washes us white as snow, and I'm so thankful for that. How about you? It's like a wave, it just kind of trickles through. <laughs> See, we all have a lot in common and yet we're all different. You know that, right? I mean, we're all different. <laughs> Pastor Mike and I are experiencing a, a kind of an identity issue of our own uh, lately. It seems like several people are, are confusing the two of us. And we thought this was just a unique phenomenon at Sports and Arts Camp a few years ago, but it continues. Now, just for the record, I am Pastor Kirk. And the person who did announcements earlier is Pastor Mike. And we are different. And my apologies to Pastor Mike that anyone would confuse him with me. 
So as noted a few weeks ago, there was this huge, huge rift in the early church between Jews and Gentiles. And we have our own rifts today. Maybe the greatest is between Wolverines and everyone else. Amen. <laughs> I got an amen up front here. But, but the Jew-Gentile divide was so much greater than, than any sports, than any politics, than any, really any ethnic thing, beyond the fact that the Jew-Gentile thing was an ethnic thing. But we are, we are one in Christ, and Jesus came and he died for men and women, rich and poor, male, female, black, white, brown, Jew, and Gentile. And I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful for the work of Jesus on the cross. We just sang about it in Christ alone. We put our, our hope, our faith, our trust because he proved his love for us. Throughout our lives, we have people that try to get our attention. They get our money. They use things. They can manipulate us. They can say, I love you. They can do these things. But Jesus proved his love. He, he backed it up. It wasn't just words. It was his actions. So we are one in Christ. It's a spiritual reality that we need to guard and protect. And this is what we've seen in the first three chapters of Ephesians, about unity, about coming together, our identity, who we are. Unity is one of those fragile things, too, because we know the enemy's always trying to work at work to divide and conquer. We've seen it around here. I think churches all across America. Oh, you voted for that person? I'm going to cancel you and I'm out of here. Oh, oh, you like that football team? I'm going to cancel you. I'm going to move on here. But Jesus' prayer for us in John 17, and we're going to see Paul's prayer for us, is that we would be one. Not uniformity, but unity. Mosaic, a bunch of different pieces coming together to form one beautiful thing. All right, let's dive in. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore, and now we know what the therefore is there for, because I've been trying to help you understand the first three chapters, all this stuff about theology, about who we are in Christ. Therefore, I, a prisoner of serving the Lord, beg you, strong word. When's the last time someone was begging? Beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Family, you have been called by God to be his representatives on planet Earth, to be involved in his kingdom. And Paul is begging this church in this town of Ephesus to live their lives worthy of their calling, to represent Jesus well, to not just talk the talk, but to live it out. Our enemy, Satan, knows the truth. I want you to just think about that for a moment. Our enemy knows the truth. In fact, he tried to twist the scriptures and misinterpret scriptures on Jesus three times in the wilderness. He, he understands this book. In fact, he probably understands this book better than you and I. So it's not just enough to have the right knowledge and the right information. He has the knowledge and the information. What Satan has never done is follow Jesus. Let me say that again. Information, knowledge, it's important. It's valuable. But unless you apply the knowledge, unless you put your faith into practice, it's useless. Faith without works is dead. Not that we are saved by works, but they are an authentic expression of our faith. We've been invited into God's family. And if we receive the invitation to be his sons and daughters, 
of the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Our lives should be different. They should be transformed because of our identity in Christ, because of the power of God alive at work. Our faith cannot stop with our head. It needs to transform our hands and our heart as well. I get so frustrated when people claim to follow Jesus, but their lives look nothing like him. And I hope that that would never be said of you or of me. Christian means little Christ. So what does that look like? Verse 2, always be humble and gentle. If we, could just, if we could just cover that, if we could just apply that in our lives, like we could just stop right now, closing prayer, head out the door. Always be humble and gentle. Will you just read that with me out loud? Always be humble and gentle. Does anyone else struggle with that? We have one honest person, all right. The two of us. It's, it's just the two of us. Always be humble and gentle. You know, pride was the, the source of Satan's downfall. He wanted to try to overthrow God and have a coup. Pride, I believe, is the root of all of our problems, all of our sins and evil. It just kind of oozes out of our, our thinking that we are somehow better than ourselves, and in many cases that we think that we're better than God, that we judge God, that we tell him how to do things. And this gentleness, by the way, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's recognizing the good, the value in others, and that love is looking out for the best interest of others. Always be humble and gentle. If we could just master this family, I think we would be such an attractive group of people that we wouldn't be able to, to handle the crowds coming in and being a part of our family. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Wow. What powerful words. By the way, let me say this. These things do not come by trying harder. Oftentimes, I think the perspective, especially with preachers, is you just need to be humble and gentle and be patient. Just do it. Just go do it. Try harder. Make it happen. And, and it, it doesn't really happen by us trying harder. It happens by us surrendering, by pausing and being still and letting the Holy Spirit fill us, changing us, transforming us from the inside out. In fact, I just, I feel led at this moment to, for us just to pause. And this is maybe a little unusual for some of you, but here's what I'd like you to do. Just where, where you're seated, and you can do this online as well. Just wherever you're at, would you just put your, your palms out like this, your hands out like this, like to receive. Someone's going to give you a gift. <laughs> give me a gift. I, I've got a, a bunch of money to give you. You're like, oh, yeah, I'll take that. I don't have money, sorry. But I'd like you just, we're just going to take a few moments of silence and just say, Holy Spirit, would you just come? I surrender. Take whatever you need to take away from me and give me, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me. I surrender. Lord God, this is a posture that we need to maintain every day. Forgive me for gripping onto things that I want to hang on to instead of surrendering and letting go. May we be a people open and surrendered to you now and forever. 
Holy Spirit, fill us with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Forgive us for, for trying harder instead of surrendering and being open. May we be a people always humble and gentle and patient. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'll be the first to admit that this idea of surrender, of being still, of being quiet, doesn't come naturally to me. I like to, to go and be and do. Excuse me. I like to go and do. The being part is harder for me. But it's so important, and I'm sort of teaching myself again and again, this does not come because I try to do it, but I'm still and spending time with the Lord. Sabbatical really kind of interrupted my my speed, my race through life, and I'm grateful for it, so, so grateful for the privilege to just spend time with the Lord and be still and know that he is God. I want people to notice me and my accomplishments all the time, but humility is about putting the focus and the emphasis on the Lord. I'm tempted to, to tell everyone how right I am about everything, but the reality is gentleness and humbleness and patience means loving others even as I love myself. This is why Paul says to be patient with one another, making allowances for each other. Do you find it easy to find fault in other people? Or am I the only one? If I could just get you to see how right I am and how you're at fault in a situation. But Paul's saying, no, be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love, your love. Verse three, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Here again, Paul's laying out a vision. He's casting a vision for a people, for the family of God, the body of Christ, this mosaic of believers to keep united in the spirit, binding together with peace. This doesn't mean we ignore one another or each other's faults. It means that we do life together. We speak the truth in love. We look out for the best interests of one another. We believe in one another, and we lead each other toward maturity. Unity, united, one. That's the result of being filled with the Spirit. If we're all filled with the Spirit, that one Lord, one faith, one baptism, as we're going to see in just a moment, that's where we find our unity. See, what brings us together is not our hairstyle, our fashion, the kind of car we drive or the vehicle or the, the, or the lack thereof. What brings us together is not our zip code. What brings us together is that we're all united at the foot of the cross. We're all related by blood, the blood of Jesus. And that's where we need to put our focus. So often churches, they, they, they get in trouble because they start focusing on other things. They start dealing with controversial issues and debates, and, and there's a place for dialogue with one another and sharpening each other and challenging each other. But ultimately, we are all united at the foot of the cross, and what brings us together is Jesus. What brings us together is the power of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. He says, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. One, 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 one. That's our theme. Many broken pieces coming together as one. 
There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and living through all. Again, we're all united at the foot of the cross. We're all related by the blood of Jesus. And this is true, family, not only for the people in this room, not only for First Alliance Church, but dare I say, for other Christians that <clears throat> attend other congregations, there's only one church in Toledo, and it's the Church of Jesus Christ. On my way in this morning, I was just praying. I was praying for many of you. I was praying for your families. And as I often do, I was just I was praying blessing over other churches in our community because we're all on the same team. I was praying blessings over Dr. Calvin Sweeney and Christine over at the Tabernacle, and I was praying blessing over Bill and Barb Herzog at the Vineyard. I was praying blessing over Westgate Chapel, our sister church, and uh, Harvest Lane Alliance Church. And today, Pastor Donald's at the Toledo Chinese Alliance Church. Some of you don't even know we have a, a Chinese Alliance Church in Toledo, and he's speaking there today. I, I was praying blessing over our brothers and sisters across our city. Because as Paul was writing to one church in one city, there was probably only one congregation in that city. So we're a larger city with multiple congregations, but only one church. However, he has given us, each one of us, a special gift through the, gener through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. This is a quote from, from Psalm chapter 68, and this is likely referring to Jesus' death and victory over death, his resurrection, setting us free from the law of sin and death. And we're going to get to the gifts part in just a moment. Notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world, and the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now, what we're going to see the rest of this chapter, this is all about Jesus and his glory. Jesus came, yes, to live, to die, to rise from the dead. But ultimately, all of creation is going to bring him honor and glory. He came to establish his kingdom, and that kingdom is partially realized today, but it will be fully realized in the future. And I don't quite understand I can't even imagine what it's going to be like to be fully under the rule and reign of Jesus, for Jesus to be king of kings and lord of lords without an enemy, without an adversary, for him to dwell in a new heaven, and particularly we will dwell with him on a new earth. It's going to be incredible, family. And I know this life is hard, and he promised us that. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I want to, especially for those of you that are, are, are struggling today, and I know many of you, your hearts are heavy, you're dealing with some really, really difficult things. The story's not over. Jesus is coming back. Is anyone ready for Jesus to come back? Because we don't know when. People are always trying to predict, which is silly, because Jesus said he didn't know. <laughs> but he's coming back, and we need to be ready, and we need to get others ready. So this is all set up. Jesus descended from heaven to earth about 2,000 years ago, ascended into heaven, and promised to return soon. So, verse 11, and 11 and 12 might be the most, uh, might be the most important two verses in my heart right now for our church and for the church in our city. Pay attention. 
Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Some have called, called this fivefold ministry. Uh, some have said, well, actually, it's the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So it, pastors and teachers are to be together. It, it probably doesn't matter in the big picture. I'm going to break it out as five separate things. If you prefer four because you see pastor and teacher together, that's fine. This is all Greek stuff anyhow originally. But some have, have taken this and, and called it apest. Now, no, apest is not, it's not a reference to like one of those. But apest is apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, or some translations it's pastor, and teacher. So let's review this for, for just a minute. Apostle. There's kind of two definitions of the word apostle. Originally, apostle, capital A apostle, was someone who saw Jesus, who was a witness to the resurrection, who experienced things in the early church. Now, obviously, there are no capital A apostles that exist today because Jesus died 2,000 years ago, and you'd have to be about 2,000 years old to be technically a capital A apostle. Maybe you've heard of someone called an apostle. This is Apostle Fred. This is Apostle Joe or whatever. You're like, wait, I thought, I thought that was like a New Testament thing. The small a apostle, in, in my understanding, is it, it's someone like a, a spiritual entrepreneur. It's someone that starts things. It's a, it's a group of people who are sent ones, entrepreneurs, church planters. They think about new ways to reach new people with the good news of the gospel. And we think about Will Henderson right now and Lead Community Church. And, and Will started a new church, a new work, doing something different in South Toledo than what's happening here in this room at this hour. And it's an expansion. It's an expression of the kingdom of God. And so apostles start new things. Prophet. A prophet is not necessarily someone that tells the future, but they are forth tellers. They proclaim God's word, often in really challenging ways. Sometimes they're bringing correction. They challenge the status quo. Biblical prophets were not very well liked. Oftentimes the people just hated them and wanted to kill them. And I'm not sure things are a whole lot different today. Because when people speak the truth, sometimes it makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes we bristle and say, can you stop talking because I'm... You're, you're convicting me, and I'd rather live in my sin and comfort. Now, again, there's some people that call themselves prophets and predict future and do all sorts of weird things. Uh, oftentimes, these people want your money, too, and that's a telltale sign that if we're trying to link all that, caution. But prophet, there are, there are prophets today. Evangelist. We're often familiar with this, not necessarily televangelists. Again, there's that money thing. But evangelists recruit. They communicate good news. They introduce people to Jesus. Shepherds, pastors. This is sort of the classic title, the classic thing. Usually someone that stands in this place and preaches, it's just assumed, oh, that's the pastor. That's the, the, the clergy. That's what they do. But really, shepherds or pastors care for people. They protect the flock, and they lead others to maturity. And then teachers teach. Again, maybe shepherd and teacher really go together, but all five of these are really important. Paul explains them, describes them, and, and says all five are necessary. And in our culture, again, it's often thought of as clergy or professionals that do this stuff. In our culture, professional Christians who may fall into one or more of these categories, they're typically given the title pastor or reverend or clergy, which kind of defeats the, the distinction of these five purposes. Now, 
I want you I want to go to verse 12 and then we're going to come back to this. It says these five people, these five we'll we'll call them leaders or the modern day we would call them influencers, people that are given one of these different gifts. It's their job, it's the job of the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the shepherd, the teacher to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Notice Paul doesn't say, I'm giving you these people, these leaders, and they are to lord it over you. He doesn't say, these are the people that you should pay and everyone else should not get paid. He says, these are gifts given to equip the church, to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Their responsibility is not to do the ministry, but to equip God's people to do the ministry. Now, one of the most important things, if I could help you understand one thing today, and you've heard me say it, I'm going to say it again. You are called by God to be a minister, a disciple maker. Every one of you, you're called by God to be a minister. When I came to First Alliance, I was looking over the FAC 101, our, our members class that you heard we're going to be having in a few weeks. And one of the, the I had never heard this before. I thought it was really fascinating. It said, the members of the church are the ministers and the staff are the administers. So the purpose of the staff is not to do the ministry. It's to administer the ministry. It's to equip, empower, and release all of you to be the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers and the apostles. Now, I think this is, this is probably, probably one of the greatest, I think the greatest lie of the enemy may be in our modern culture to convince all of you to pay me to do the work of the ministry. Now, let me be clear. I'm grateful for a paycheck. Thank you. But if I'm the only one that does the ministry, 99% of the army is disengaged. This was not even an issue in the, in the first century because there weren't a lot of vocational ministers in the first century. But from Constantine on, and we see a lot with the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church, and some of it even goes back to the priests in the, in the Old Testament, this idea of clergy being the professionals doing all the work and then everyone else just sits back and watches. When I was a kid, I grew up in a small church in Brighton, Michigan. And as a kid, I just thought, oh, the pastor, that's, we pay him and he does all the work and we just sit back and watch and decide every year if you know, we want to keep him or fire him or whatever we do. I didn't have a concept at all of what's known as the priesthood of all believers that, you know, we are all called to be priests. We're all called to be engaged in ministry. We're all called to make disciples. And my role and the role of our staff is, is to equip, to train, equip, and empower you to release all of you. See, the way the modern church often thinks about it, just, just imagine, imagine a football team. Uh, Heather and I went to the UT game yesterday and, and, uh, and actually in to, to Clay High School on Friday. We had, this was like football weekend for us. But, but I want you to just imagine if, if the team lined up at the sidelines and they said to the coach, Okay, coach, go play our opponent. Do you think the coach would have any chance of beating the opponent? Is there 11, is there 11 guys or 12 guys on the field? Help me out, someone. 
11. I think, I think the greatest football coach in the world could not stand up to 11 kindergartners trying to pass the ball. Can you mean, like, keep away from the coach, right? Hey, this one guy, we can surely outmaneuver this guy. Imagine a team of, of 99 people going up against one person. Like, it's ludicrous. There, there's no way that, that that guy, that team, is ever going to win. And yet, I think for hundreds of years in our culture, we've said, let's let the clergy do all the ministry and we'll sit back and watch. We're going to be the spectators. When in fact, the role of the coach is not to get on the field and play. The, the, the role of the coach is to administer, to train, to equip, to empower, and get the team ready to go out and send them out for victory. And yeah, there are player coaches, and it's not like, I'm not in any way saying that that our staff is not engaged in ministry. But what Paul is really saying is we have leaders that are, their job is to equip and empower all the saints, all the members, all the body of Christ, that we're all called to be ministers. Does that make sense? Again, this is not how I was raised. I did not understand this concept at all. But over time, I've really begun to, to get frustrated by what I, what I see in the church is that our staff is just here to serve, to equip, and empower so that we can all go into our community because there's no way that I can reach everyone in Toledo for Christ. I don't have the relational network. I don't have the time. I, I, I don't. But if we all are released, if every one of you discipled one person this year and they discipled one person next year and they discipled one person the next year, now we start to see multiplication. We start to see exponential expansion of God's kingdom. The message of Jesus in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, was not to clergy to make disciples and preach good sermons. It was for all followers of Jesus to be engaged to make disciples. Now, Doug Oliver alerted me to the reason a, a few years ago why this is such a challenge, and it goes back to the King James Version of the Bible. I'm not anti-King James. If you like King James, that's great. I've always struggled with Shakespeare. But the original King James was written in 1611, and this says... In the original King James, he gave some apostles and prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, and then here's their assignment. For the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I read that, and I would guess you read that, is to say God gave these leaders, and one of the parts of the leaders is it's their job to do the work of the ministry. It was corrected in the New King James Version, which states in 1982, he gave himself some to be apostles, evangelists, pastors, teaching of the saints for the work of the ministry. And it, I'm sorry that it got cut off. Um, this actually will, will show it a little bit better. So a pastor, prophet, evangelist, prophet, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, for the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the finding of the body of Christ, the, correct, the correction in 1982 for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You see the difference? It's one little piece of punctuation. If I had to do all the work of the ministry, I would burn out like so many clergy have in recent years. If our job as staff is to equip you, which we do through Sunday gatherings, through life groups, through online resources, discipleship huddles, right now, media, other tools. 
We can all get in the game. We can all love God, love our neighbors as ourselves, and make disciples of all nations. So let me say this again. You are called to be a minister, a disciple maker. Every one of you, if you claim to follow Jesus. First Alliance isn't about a Sunday gathering. It's an army of love that is activated and serving in the kingdom of God 168 hours a week. That's worth noting there are other parts of the New Testament which speak about spiritual gifts such as healing and hospitality and tongues, interpretation. But in this case, he's saying that people are the gift. All right, we're just about to wrap up. But I just want to make this abundantly clear because this is, I believe, the heart of this section. In our context, what we need to apply is understanding how we're all given gifts we need to find and identify those gifts and use them for God's glory. Even on our staff and in our, in our leadership, I was thinking about how we have all different leaders. Uh, I've always felt more of an apostle than the other roles as I've been involved in a lot of planting churches and starting new works and ministries. I think about Jason who spoke last week and he's got this prophetic edge to him. He speaks forth God's truth and I don't know about you, but sometimes he makes me really uncomfortable and it's not about Jason. It's about the truth of Scripture that he's exposing and expressing, and, and it's, it leads to conviction. I think about Pastor Donald, who is such a great shepherd and does such a good job caring, particularly for our shut-ins and others, and, and he has that real shepherding and pastoring, pastoring gift. I, I think of Pastor Mike as a teacher and how he loves to teach our students and our adults as well. And when I was thinking about evangelists, and who's always sharing the gospel and seeing people come to Christ. Uh, although he's not on our staff technically, one of our elders, Hollywood, comes to mind as he's always engaging. And, and each of us have different gifts, different strengths, different abilities. And as we discover how God's wired us up, we can then partner together. And the evangelists can equip and train the evangelists. And the teachers can train and equip the teachers and, and so on and so forth so that we're multiplying. It's not about just keeping status quo. It's not even about addition, but ultimately it's about multiplying. Verse 13, this will continue until we all come to such unity of our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. There's that word unity again. One. Then, and this is the ultimate result of all this unity of these gifts of equipping and empowering, then we'll no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. This was especially true then as it is today. Heresy rises up all the time. People believing in all sorts of wackadoodle stuff. We'll not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, his church. Is that a beautiful picture? Jesus, the head of his church, that we would be growing, we would be speaking the truth in love more and more. Unity, one. As the music team comes up, uh, verse 16, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. I could preach a whole other sermon just just. On, on these verses. But here's the big idea. The church of Jesus Christ is to be one family, united not in our politics, ethnicity, age, or income, 
but in faith, all loving and serving together for God's glory. We're all different. We need one another. I need you and you need me. You, you may be one color of, of broken glass. I may be a different color and shape of broken glass. And on our own, we're not much. I, I feel like I don't have a whole lot to offer this world, this city. But together, when we come together and the different gifts and shapes and passions, we form this beautiful mosaic that is not only beautiful to Jesus, it's beautiful to our community and our world. It says, wow, that's a community, that's a family that I'd like to be a part of. I believe it all starts with verse 2. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with one another, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Family, let's surrender to the Lord, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through us as we restore God's masterpieces in Toledo and beyond for his glory. He's worthy of our worship, our praise, our time, our talent, our treasure. Amen? So we're going to close today by singing a, a beautiful song about a beautiful name, the name that is above all names and how Jesus is the head of the church. I, I'm not the head of this church. Jesus is the head. And we're united in Christ, in Christ alone all together at the foot of the cross. Would you please stand?